Good. If you would turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, that would be great. This is the ninth sermon in our series on uh, Timothy and Titus. And um, we have made it to 2 Timothy chapter 3, almost to the end of Timothy. Let me go ahead and read this and listen carefully as always as this is God's word. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I have endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to Paul's second letter to Timothy this morning to learn more about the word of truth and about the fear of suffering and the need for true godliness and endurance. And Lord, as with most of what Paul has written to Timothy, this is hard. Sometimes we don't want to admit we're not as godly as we pretend to be. Sometimes the suffering that faces us is so disheartening that we just want to quit. We know so many who have. And so, Lord, once again, teach us what to do. Teach us what to say. Teach us what to believe. Teach us how to live. Build our faith, draw us near, and help us learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through these words of the Apostle Paul this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. All of you have heard of climate change. The thought is that the industrialization of our society is making the world warmer And that will bring negative consequences across the globe. And there are others who think it's all baloney and none of that is going to happen. And I'll let you decide. 
However, there is another kind of climate change taking place in our country today that's both spiritual and cultural in nature. And many of us, myself included, think it's going to bring negative consequences to those of us who follow Christ. Now, regardless of your views, there are few people today who deny the dramatic shifts taking place in our country. Many decry those shifts, others celebrate them. Some fear these changes will bring great suffering to the church, while others hope they will do exactly that. As cultural changes sweep our country, we'll soon be challenged to live out what the Bible says about confronting and responding to persecution. For nearly 250 years, Christians in America are able to live in relative freedom from persecution. We escape because our society historically promoted biblical values. Our founding fathers penned a constitution esteeming religious liberty and establishing that rights came from God, not the government. And foreign leaders have recognized America's uniqueness ever since the early years of our nation. And while this can be a blessing, the freedoms that we have enjoyed make us an outlier among all the nations. Believers in much of the world regularly encounter persecution, prosecution, and even execution. The World Evangelical Fellowship estimates 200 million Christians, 200 million Christians live under the daily threat of imprisonment, or torture, and twice as many, 400 million Christians, reside where laws discriminate against them. Persecution is the global norm, and Americans are the anomaly. But we're witnessing an epic change in our culture, a spiritual climate change that's reshaping life as we know it. Hostility and intolerance are replacing Tolerance. In fact, tolerance has taken on a new meaning that is more in line with intolerance. D.A. Carson wrote a book by that title called The Intolerance of Tolerance. Rejection and hatred are pushing aside acceptance. Now, John Dickerson, in a very well-researched book called The Great Evangelical Recession, wrote the following. In the coming decades, United States evangelicals will be tested as never before by the ripping and tearing of external cultural change, a force more violent than many of us expect. Evangelicalism in the United States has stood strong through centuries of difficulties and setbacks. She has not seen anything quite like what she will see in the next 50 years. What's coming? Now, Dickerson used to be an investigative journalist and was when he wrote this book. He's now a pastor. But he makes four observations in this book. I'm just going to sort of read you the observations and not all the details. But it says, The United States' broader host culture is changing faster than most of us realize. The change includes pro-homosexuality and anti-Christian reaction. The rate of change will accelerate as the oldest two generations die, taking their traditional values and votes with them. These changes will reach an intensity where they directly affect the church and our lives as individual evangelicals. Now, does that have the ring of truth to it? I think so. 
But the scary part is it was written 10 years ago. And we've had years of pastors and various ministry leaders warning us that things are going to get worse for Christians and we need to prepare for suffering. But now these warnings are coming from journalists and demographers. What does all that mean for us? Well, first, let's define a few terms. When I talk about suffering in the context of 2 Timothy 3, I'm not talking about the kind of suffering that typically comes from a relational or economic loss or mental illness or physical disease, things we normally associate with suffering. I'm not even talking about the offer that Andrea made this week to post on Facebook. If you want to experience true suffering, come hear our pastor. Hey, if that's as bad as it gets, you're doing pretty good. Not that. I'm talking about the kind of suffering that comes from hostility towards Christianity in general and Christians in particular. This is the suffering that comes first. You'll have to listen carefully here. That comes from the consequences of believing and living according to what is false but also the suffering that comes second from believing and living according to what is true and being persecuted by those who believe and live according to what is false. Now, are there exceptions to the rule? Of course there are. Sometimes people of the truth are persecuted by other people of the truth. That happens. The reality is those numbers are quite small. Now, compared to most of the world, Americans have a limited view of persecution. We think of it in primarily physical terms, such as imprisonment or martyrdom. And that's the most obvious, and as I said, it's still uh, true in many places around the world. However, the biblical term suggests a much broader view that includes aggression and oppression and violence that affects body, mind, and emotions. So I think one of the best definitions comes from Jeffrey Bromley, who's a, a noted theologian. He says, persecution is the suffering or pressure, mental, moral, or physical, which authorities, individuals, or crowds inflict on others, especially for opinions or beliefs with a view to their subjection by recantation, silencing, or as the last resort, execution. Probably the best technical definition that I could find. Simply put, persecution is the societal marginalization of believers with a view to eliminating their voice and influence. Its tactics can span a wide spectrum, depending on the severity of measures needed, to eradicate the voice of a follower of Christ. And the Apostle Paul lists some of those measures, actually a lot of them, in this text. But what I want you to notice is how these measures are adopted by the ungodly, but imposed on the godly. So let's start at the beginning where we see that suffering comes from false loves. Suffering comes from false loves. Paul warns Timothy at the beginning of today's passage. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, 
proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So first thing, the last days is referring to the time period that began with the coming of Christ, continued in Timothy's day, continues in our day as we wait Christ's return. It's commonly the time between the first and second coming of Christ. So the last days and the times of difficulty have been in effect for 2,000 years. And it's clear from the context because at the end of verse 5, Timothy is uh, commanded in the present tense to avoid such people. On the one hand, these verses are an explicit description of those who are hurting the Ephesian church with false teaching. But at the same time, they foreshadow the realistic consequences of false teaching today. Now, I encourage you, if you weren't in Sunday school, much of what Timothy says here, Isaiah covered um, uh, almost 800 years before. As we were going through Sunday school, I was like, I'm saying that, I'm saying that, I'm saying that. Um, So there's consequences for false teachers. There's also consequences for following the false teaching. And it reminds us that we're in the last days. And Paul's brutal description here springs from an inversion that's taken place in the people's hearts as a consequence of this false teaching, where the love of God has been replaced with the love of God of self. You can see it reading the opening and closing characteristics of verses 2 through 4. For people will be lovers of self, start of verse 2, rather than lovers of God, end of verse 4. So Christ's uh, great commandment from Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, has been turned upside down in emphasis. Self, love, reigns. Notice that love suffers six tragic characteristics in Paul's description. He says people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and then he goes through proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal. And I'm going to take a a description out of the NIV there and lump all that in the category of without love. So that's the third one, without love. Then he says, not loving good, because they're treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. So we have six tragic characteristics. When the love of God is replaced with love of self, all sorts of unloving characteristics inevitably follow as these characteristics become part of our lives. And Paul's description of the inversion actually divides into brutal um, couplets or linked items. If we look at we're going to look at them briefly, but we have to, it's not just Paul's description. We have to remember this is an inspired description of people under the influence of false teachers. <coughs> and it's become a giant impersonal mess. And Paul's painting a tragic picture here, starting in verse 2. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. How easily have they become a narcissistic lot. 
having switched their soul's gravity from God to themselves, they have, in effect, wrapped their arms around themselves in a loving embrace. Their passion for self is matched with a love for money. Now, Paul's already mentioned that back in 1 Timothy 6. He said, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So love of money is a spiritual corollary to self-love. Both serve the self. Still in verse 2, we see they're proud, arrogant, given to arrogant words and proud thoughts. One of the descriptions in Isaiah of the people who are against God is they were proud and arrogant. Things haven't changed. The psalmist cry of Psalm 34, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. That's as far from their hearts and lips as the moon is from the earth. We see they're abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, both of which flow from abuse and disobedience uh, to parents. Ingratitude, disregard of the fundamental decencies of life are a natural result of putting yourself first. Furthermore, they're heartless and unappeasable, or as the NIV says, without love, unforgiving. They violate their most intimate relationships. They lack family affection. Their natural uh, affections for family is smothered. They're unforgiving because they're merciless when offended. Does that sound at all familiar of today's world? How many people are merciless when offended? They're slanderous without self-control. Their slandering tongues reside in bodies that could not govern themselves. They're set on fire by hell. That sounds rough, but that comes from James chapter 3, where he says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. There aren't too many verses in the Bible tougher than that one. He says they're brutal, not loving good. Their brutality is like savage beasts. They loathed authentic goodness. And then verse 4 brings the description to this blistering conclusion. They're treacherous, reckless. The word treacherous was an adjective that was used for Judas. Same Greek word was described him as a traitor in Luke 6. The second adjective, reckless, fits well because false teachers will stop at nothing to get what they want. And he says they're swollen with conceit, which reminds me of the writer Oscar Wilde who once told the customs officer as he returned to England, I have nothing to declare but my genius. And then finally, they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure is a translation of two Greek words, philos, love, and hedonai, pleasure, from which we get our English word hedonism. They're controlled by pleasure, as are many in today's brave new world. It is a devastating critique. There isn't a redemptive syllable in the whole paragraph. Self-love is suffocating this church. It's suffocating the relationships between God's people. And again, this brutal critique is not the product of Paul's morbid musings from his prison cell or a skewed perspective of someone who actually needs a breath of fresh air. This is the Holy Spirit's description of spiritual reality 
in one of the fellowships of the early church. These are people that Paul knew. You sort of wish he stopped there, but he didn't. Because this issue is too important for the warning not to be taken seriously. So the second thing he tells us to watch out for is that suffering comes from false godliness. False godliness. He says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So there's both men and women who are being led astray by false teaching and who are being led away from the faith. It says, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now, Paul's searing rundown here states the stark spiritual reality of the false teachers, that despite having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. They have the externals of religion in place. They're experts on the externals. They're masters of an extreme asceticism, which they have subverted from a life of simplicity to a life of harsh starkness. Legalism is their specialty. They have carefully measured out everything for their followers, and they had a rule for everything. But everything was empty because they denied the power of the gospel. This is the last day's reality for Timothy and for the Ephesian church. They had the form without the substance. And all of that is still true in parts of the church today. Unregenerate evangelicals are a growing reality. It's so easy to acquire the appearance of godliness. To subscribe to all the uh, right Christian subculture expressions and customs, and yet be denying its power by the quality of our lives. And what does Paul say to Timothy? He says, flee those whose lives contradict the gospel. He says, avoid such people. Have nothing to do with them. That's his sole advice in this whole first section. The lives of those who profess the gospel must demonstrate the power of the gospel. And if they don't, avoid them. Then he mentions the false teachers, verse 7, who are never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. He uses the example of Janus and Jambres, the court magicians under Pharaoh. They can't match the power of Moses. So he says, verse 8, these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They are, as he wrote earlier, again in 1 Timothy 6, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And then finally, in this litany of misery, Paul warns us to watch out for the suffering that comes from true godliness. We had suffering from false godliness, now suffering from true godliness. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, 
that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I want to focus that on verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'm sure somebody out there is thinking, why do we have to focus on that? Maybe somebody's thinking, don't those things contradict each other? How can you keep live a godly life together with will be persecuted? I mean, I was on board with suffering for false godliness, not so excited about suffering from true godliness. Looks like I lose either way. And there is some truth to that. Because when the gospel's at work in your life, When your life is characterized, as he says here, by Christian teaching, conduct, faith, patience, love, and steadfastness, then you'll attract some people and repel others. And it is just that simple. Anybody who's living a consistent Christian life will polarize people. That means there'll be some people who say, you seem like a really good person. Can I talk to you about my problems? I want to find out what's going on in your life. I want to get to know you. And you'll have people who get upset with you and offended by you and angry at you. And you may go through seasons where there's popularity and seasons where there's persecution. And it might happen at the same time. But nobody will notice if you're not living a consistent Christian life. The fact is, whenever the church is the church, it gets both. People are attracted to the gospel, and people will persecute you because of the gospel. And if you're living a consistent Christian life, there will be that polarizing effect on people around you. Now, truth be told, sometimes people are persecuted for being obnoxious. You can be persecuted for being unpleasant. A lot of people are persecuted because uh, they're obnoxious and unpleasant, Um, particularly online. And if they're Christians, they're quick to think, I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake. No, you're not. You're being persecuted for being a jerk. And God didn't call any of us to be jerks. Because Christ is our model. And his model is this. The more God's glory is shining out of your life, the more that you will both attract and repel people. And if nobody's reacting either way, maybe there's not much of Christ showing forth in your life. If nobody's being attracted because of your love or repelled because of your holiness, maybe there's not much going on. Now that sounds hard. Remember Jesus said, Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The NIV translates that last part, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, not because of you. Are you speaking inappropriately? Are you being insensitive? That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus is saying persecution is on my account because of me, for my sake. And when that happens, there are people who are not believers and they're going to hate your guts. 
At the same time, some people who are not believers will be attracted by your life and persuaded by your testimony. Now, if both of those things are happening, you're in the zone. You're in the sweet spot. But if you speak the truth without love, then there's persecution and not attraction. If you love people but withhold the truth, you might be attracting them, but you're never persecuted. Of course, you're not going to really see anybody come to faith that way either. The point is, if you're consistently in conflict, but nobody ever finds faith through you, you're always persecuted but never attracting, probably not being persecuted because of him, but because of you. On the other hand, if you're never persecuted, you never get any pushback. Nobody comes after you. Nobody's hostile towards you. Nobody gives you trouble for being a Christian. The best case, it means you're not living a consistent Christian life, so you don't look all that different than anybody else. And worst case, you're just being a coward. So the question is, are you living in that sweet spot? Does your life attract some and repel others? And if not, why not? Now, that's a hard question, but we need to ask it, all of us. Suffering comes from false godliness, and suffering can also come from true godliness. And Timothy knew all that. But to hear it again from Paul, he's writing this right before his death, is invigorating. This is the reality, and the acceptance of it puts Timothy on solid ground for what's to come. And such reality will stand us well for the battles today. Our culture flees suffering, sees nothing noble in it or beyond it. But Christians are told to expect it in the regular course of serving God. And those who do will stand strong. Significantly, the next set of verses contains the Bible's most famous statement on the inspiration of the scriptures. We have to understand, they're set in the context of continuing and going on and remaining in the gospel in the face of suffering. (coughs) What Christians believe about the scriptures has everything to do with keeping the faith in times of difficulty. Knowing that, it's important to know that endurance comes from true wisdom. Look at verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, as it's Reformation Sunday, it's time to turn to Martin Luther. We already sang his most uh, famous hymn. and uh, But here, and it's a little bit of a tangent, but I thought it was worthwhile. Martin Luther taught his barber how to pray. One day, he's getting his hair cut, and his barber, whose name was Peter Beskendorf, said, Master Luther, how do I pray? And so Luther, being Luther, wrote him a 40-page letter on how to pray. And you can buy a modern translation of that letter today. It's called A Simple Way to Pray. And it's available for like three bucks on Amazon. 
a fascinating letter. But what he does, he says, do meditation. And by that, it means the u- using scripture and praying about what you learn. And here's how he, he does it. He takes four things from this passage, from 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, where it says, scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, or some versions say rebuke, for correction, which is also used for healing, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Luther says you just take a passage, any passage, and you ask yourself four things. And then you ask God those same four things. So first, what is the teaching of this verse? So you ask yourself that question, and then you ask God that question. Second, how does this verse rebuke me? What does it do to criticize the way in which I'm living? How does this verse correct me? Does it direct me or build me up? How does it heal my soul? And fourth, how does this equip me to be different? How does it direct me or build me up? Uh, What can I do differently as a result of this? How does it train me to live more righteously? And so Luther said that's what you do. You take this verse, you can apply it to any scripture and just ask those four questions. Now, in his letter, he applied it to the Lord's Prayer. And so he said, and I don't have time to go through the whole thing, we'll just start at the beginning and take the phrase, Our Father who art in heaven. He has several pages on the word are. So what's the teaching of the word are? The teaching is, when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't say pray like this, My Father who art in heaven. It's interesting, when Jesus gives us the paradigm for prayer, he said, Our Father. Which means that when you come to Christ, you also come to brothers and sisters. No one comes to Christ alone. You come to Christ as part of a body. The minute you come into a relationship with Christ, you become part of a body of believers. So the teaching is that you need to be praying together with them or you don't know much about prayer. So how does this rebuke you? Well, you can say, I'm not praying with other Christians very much. Suppose you're not praying with other Christians and you're missing out on a big part of what God has for you. You wonder why there's not a lot of spiritual power in your life. And he says you're disobeying the text. That's how it rebukes you. And so you confess that sin to the Lord. How does it correct or heal you? It heals you because you immediately say, you know what? I really don't have much in the way of relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It means I'm unwilling to tell people about my problems. I'm unwilling to open up. I don't want to go through the hard work. I'm scared of vulnerability. I'm afraid of being hurt or being misunderstood. So I don't have those relationships. But now you say, wait a minute. There's all kinds of resources in the people of the church. And I haven't taken hold of them. That corrects me and heals me as I think about it. There's all kinds of untapped resources out there in the people of God, and I haven't found them or utilized them. So you ask God to give you the courage to make friends with people you can actually talk to. And I know that's hard for some of you. So you have to ask God to help you do that, that the Lord would bring the right people, listening people, into your life. How can that equip you to be different? Well, you can say this week, I'm going to find two Christians that I can pray with this month. Lord, direct me to those people. Now, all that's Martin Luther. 
just modernized. He says, that's our. And then he moves on to father. And he works through that. And Luther would take this whole meditation and work through it. And it's a simple way to learn and to pray. Now, all of this is well and good to know, but in reality, it's a whole lot harder to put into practice. And I think it's because, just as Paul is telling Timothy, who we're told earlier is a timid person, that as much as we may agree with what he says here, we really don't want to do it because it's hard. And the teaching isn't that hard if you're the student. But reproof slams our own self-sufficiency. Correction nails our pride. Training in righteousness is just flat hard work. And when the word of God goes to work on your life, it can be very uncomfortable. And in case you haven't noticed, most of us prefer comfortable. And so far too often, for far too many, we simply don't take the time to read the scriptures. But there is nothing more needed. Why? Because reading the Bible does a number of things for us and in us. Ed Stetzer is a pastor and professor, writes a lot about the state of the church, He also edits the uh, Gospel Project curriculum, which we use in our children's church. And he was asked to speak at a conference on how to get people to serve others. And so his group, he teaches at Wheaton um, Graduate School of something or other, biblical sounding, I don't remember the name. But they did a study on how to do that. How do we get people to serve others? And the one factor that correlated with a greater practice of serving others was reading the Bible. So they expanded the survey and discovered that reading the Bible had the highest correlation with every other aspect of discipleship. So he says, when people ask, how do we get people to share their faith? The answer is, get them to read the Bible. How do we get people to pray? The answer is, get them to read the Bible. How do we get people to serve others? The answer is, get them to read the Bible. Why? Because the Bible doesn't just give us knowledge. It forms our identity. It grounds us in the truth. Notice how many times uh, Paul mentions truth in writing to Timothy. You can go through. It's there a lot. But what is that truth? Truth is that which is consistent with the Word of God, revealed in the inerrant and inspired Scriptures. And what is the message of Scripture? The central message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ alone, apart from any works of our own. So we read in Ephesians 1, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we confess with Christ, John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Truth is that which is consistent with the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the culture is in chaos because it has rejected this good news. Our culture has rejected the truth. And it's not only rejected the truth of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or the truth of the Bible as God's infallible and authoritative word, or even the truth of God's existence. It has rejected truth Altogether, our culture has proved the words of Romans 1, which again was quoted with Isaiah this morning, which says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, 
the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. And then near the end it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So if our culture has come under the judgment of Romans 1, then we have to follow the prescriptions of Romans 1, and that is to proclaim the truth of the gospel by which sinners can be saved from divine judgment. Paul writes Romans 1, 16 and 17, Martin Luther's life-changing verses, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And even though the things of the Spirit are foolishness to the natural mind, 1 Corinthians 2, nevertheless God still opens the minds of the unbelieving and shines the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. He does this by the proclamation of the very word they reject so hard-heartedly, 1 Peter 1. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10. We live in a day and time when it's easy to hate the culture, when it seems to hate us, but that is not what we're called to do. We're called to point people to the God of truth, the spirit of truth, the word of truth, and the gospel of truth, and we do that by speaking the truth. And that's why we endure suffering. So that your friends and family members will hear the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, which is able to make them wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We endure suffering for their sake. So think of someone who needs that truth and pray for them by name now. Go ahead and do that now and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess that there are times when we run from things that might hurt. We flee suffering. There are times when we fail to read and obey your word. Because of that, we fail to speak the truth and we fail to serve others. And there are times when we'd much rather pursue selfishness and the things of this world rather than godliness and the things of Christ. Please forgive us. Our sins are too many to list. But most of all, we thank you for the one who has given himself for the salvation of our souls. Thank you for the one who experienced suffering and persecution and vulnerability so we could be saved. Thank you for the one whose blood was shed so we could be forgiven. Thank you for the one who gave up everything so we could have what really matters, the truth of the gospel. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we pray for that belief to come to our friends and family members. Give us the courage to speak truth to them. And through these words from Paul to Timothy, enable us to hear, know, and love the word of truth, the word of Christ, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.